Thank you, Alan, and the praise team. That was beautiful. Thank you, Sarah, for that piano special. If you have a Bible with you this morning, open it to Matthew chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 22, the first and the last chapters of our New Testament. And uh, while you're doing that, let me say, if you're visiting with us here, we're so grateful that you've joined us and hope that it will be time well spent for you. And uh, if there's anything we can do for you, please let us know. Yesterday, our ladies had a wonderful lunch and fellowship. There were 50 or 60 ladies in our fellowship hall, and they just uh, had a tremendous time together. Uh, I've got a list of names here about a mile long. I asked my wife to give me to thank because I don't want to, I don't want you to go unnoticed. And I'm going to read this list off to you. And if you're here, that's fine. And somewhere in the earlier service, but Renee Andrews and Barbara Stokes and Angie Brast, Ruth Haney, Rick Gilger, Roy Ann Vickers, Jan Grimm, Doug Grimm, Carolyn and John McCalmont, Albert Heron, Dolores Baldwin, Denise Mulcahy, Kay Lance, Janice White, Jerry Three, Lori Holly, Sharon Donahay, and Connie Heron. And I'm sure I left someone out, but thank every one of you. Give them a hand for the work they did. Uh, Angie Brast, I know, and um, uh, Ruth Haney chopped about how many pounds of potatoes? 30, 30 pounds of potatoes. If you've ever chopped potatoes, you know 30 pounds, that'll wear you out. And uh, there was some leftover potato soup, and uh, I can attest that it was very, very good. But anyway, there will be another ladies' fellowship similar to that one coming up next month. You'll hear more about it. I have, if you notice today, you look up here and say, he's bleeding. No, I got a stamp from my granddaughter. Where is she in here? There she is. There's Claire. And uh, I also got a sticker. So if you look up there and you're trying to go, what's that? What's wrong with me? I got a Valentine sticker on this end and I got a stamp on this end. So just so you know, I'm okay. Uh, in Matthew chapter 1, today we're going to take a look, a good look at something very familiar. We're going to look at what we call the New Testament. And I have a copy of the New Testament here in my hand. I've carried a New Testament with me for years uh, this is not necessarily the one I carry. Uh, the one I carry, I forgot and left at home, so I grabbed this out of my office. Uh, but uh, when I open this New Testament and I open it in the beginning, I read these following 16 words. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And when I open it to the last verse in this New Testament, I read... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The book literally begins with Jesus Christ and ends with Jesus Christ. And in between those 28 words are 181,255 more, all about one man, Jesus Christ. That's what the New Testament is. It is the New Testament of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that first word in the New Testament... The book is where we get our word Bible from. It's the Greek word biblos. And it's where we've gotten the word Bible. The Bible is one book made up of 66 uh, individual books in our English versions. And the Old Testament has 39 of those books. And the New Testament, 27. The Old Testament writings, Jesus said, were also 
all about him. In John 5.39, he said, search the scriptures. That would be the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they, the Old Testament scriptures, are they which testify of me. And on the road to Emmaus, after his resurrection, he came upon two disciples who didn't recognize him. They were kept from realizing who he was. And he said to them, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them uh, in the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he took the Old Testament scriptures and pointed out himself to them in the Old Testament. Later that day, (laughs) he was with his disciples in a closed room, and he said to them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So the Bible is all about Jesus Christ. And the New Testament specifically is about Jesus Christ. There are 27 individual writings. The first four we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they tell us about the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And the next book is written by Luke, and it's called The Acts of the Apostles. And it tells us the ministry of the apostles of Jesus Christ. And then there follow 22 letters to individuals and churches telling us all about the church of Jesus Christ. So the New Testament is all about Jesus, and it begins with a connection to the past. Matthew 1.1 says, the book of the generation, that's a family tree, a genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That entire first chapter, for the most part, gives you name after name after name of people who were in the family tree of Jesus Two of those people are marked out specifically, and they're mentioned here in the first verse, Abraham and David. Abraham lived approximately 2,000 years before Jesus Christ. And David lived approximately 1,000 years before Christ. Now, Abraham was a man that God chose and gave a promise to him. He promised him a son. In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. Now, Abraham had, or Abram at the time, had no children. So if God, Chad, is going to make a great nation out of this man, he's going to have to give him a kid, right? I mean, you can't become a great nation if you don't have a child. You've got to have someone to start with. Well, he didn't have a son. And Sarah was way too old to bear children, but God blessed them and miraculously gave them a son. And uh, But by chapter 15, he still hadn't fulfilled that promise. And Abram began to get a little concerned, and he says to the Lord God, What will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the uh, steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And God uh, fulfilled that promise and gave Abram a son whose name was Isaac. And we'll talk more about that later. But God also promised to this other man mentioned, David, he promised him a kingdom. See, David was born of the line of Judah. 
And Judah was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. This is Abraham's great-grandson, Judah, of that line of people, David was born. And God chose David and said, Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And when Jesus was born, he came to be to fulfill the promise to David of a king that would live forever on the throne of Israel. So the New Testament begins with a connection to the past, and it ends with a connection to the future, a promise. Revelation 22, the last book in the Bible, the last chapter, the last verses, he which testifies these things says, Surely I come quickly, amen, even so come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. So the, the New Testament begins with a connection to the past and a connection and a promise of the future that Jesus is coming again. So what is this thing we call the New Testament? Well, it's a book, rather 27 books, but it's more than a book. And there's a specific understanding and there's a specific detailed uh, definition of it in the Bible. It's a book that contains the promises that God makes to us in Christ Jesus. Now, fortunately, we don't have to guess what the New Testament is. We're given specifically what it is. Six times in the New Testament, this phrase, New Testament, is used. We're going to look at all six of those this morning, and we'll come away with a very clear understanding of what this New Testament is all about. Now, the first four of these references to the word new uh, the words new testament are on your screen here and they're all found in the gospels Matthew Mark Luke and then one in Paul's letter to the Corinthians let's look at these and and see the connection here Matthew 26 at the last supper Jesus says this is my blood of the new testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins Those words are recorded again in Mark 14 where he says unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Luke 22, he says, Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Paul, in referring back to that Lord's Supper, or communion time as some call it, after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This is the cup, uh, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do you as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. You starting to get the picture? It's about the blood. It's about the blood of Jesus Christ. It's about his blood that was shed on the cross for the remission of our sins. The New Testament in my blood. The Bible is a very bloody book. Uh, the word blood appears 300 in 392 verses in the Bible, 94 of those in the New Testament. Why? Why is it so bloody? You know, some people, they, they like to take the blood out. They don't like to talk about the blood. The blood is very important, as we'll see as we go forward here, because we are a bloody people. The history of the human race is a very bloody history. 
If you want good reading, happy readings, happy endings, don't read the history of humanity. It's not a happy story. It's a bloody story, a very bloody story. And the reason for this is because man is a sinner. Man is a fallen creature in opposition to his creator. And if a person doesn't understand that very fundamental truth, they will never understand history. They will never understand the Bible. And they will never understand the New Testament. There is a reason for the New Testament in his blood. Romans chapter 5 verse 12, Paul wrote and said, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they plunged the human race into the dark depths of sin and separation from God. And man's sin in the beginning brought about the very first blood shed on this earth. Now, you might think the first blood shed on earth was when Cain killed Abel. We'll talk about that here in a minute, but it's not. Now, the first blood shed on earth is found in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 21. After Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, he sought them and gave them a promise of redemption and shed the blood of innocent animals to cover their nakedness. Genesis 3.21 says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. You know the story, how that Adam and Eve had sinned against God and they tried to hide from his presence and they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. Uh, because they were ashamed of their nakedness and God came to them, confronted them, promised them a a redeemer and then God himself shed the blood of innocent animals because of Adam and Eve's sins. That was the first blood shed on earth. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden and from God's presence and not long after, Cain and Abel came to worship the Lord. But Cain's sacrifice was not accepted by God, and Abel's was. And the difference was that Abel offered unto God the firstlings of his flock. He brought lambs and shed the blood of lambs in his worship of God. Probably, though, uh, Cain, uh, he didn't bring lambs. He brought the fruit of the ground, his harvest, probably his best. But God shows us here that, and throughout all of Scripture that our best is not what He desires. The wages of sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, Hebrew says, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, this bloodshed is a recognition of the fact that you and me, we are sinners separated from God by our sin. Cain later rises up and kills his brother Abel. And humanity continues on its bloody ride from Lamech all the way to the days of Noah. And God saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and his every imagination of thoughts and intents of his heart was evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made him. And God decided, I'm through. I'm going to destroy the earth. But Noah found grace In the eyes of the Lord. You might wonder, well, how is it that Noah found grace? Maybe he was just better than everybody else. No, that's not grace. 
Grace is always connected in Scripture with a sacrifice for sins. When Noah got off that ark, the first thing he did upon leaving the ark was he built an altar. And he offered burnt offerings unto God on that altar. After the flood, man continued his downward spiral, and in an effort to reach the heavens, they gathered on the plain of Shinar and built a tower, not an altar, a tower that they hoped would reach to heaven. But God put an end to their evil plans and scattered them throughout the world by dividing their tongues. And in the land of Chaldees, in the city of Ur, one of those people God called out of the midst of an idolatrous people to follow him, to leave his house, and to go to the land of Canaan. We know that as the man mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, Abraham. Abram obeyed the Lord, and when he arrived in Canaan, what did he do? He built an altar, and he offered sacrifice upon that altar. He moved again, uh, and there in chapter 12 of Genesis, verse 8, he built another altar. And when you follow the life of Abraham through the early chapters of Genesis, he's always building altars. Why? It's a place to sacrifice for your sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. He taught his family to do the same. And Isaac built altars. Genesis chapter 26 and Genesis chapter 33. We won't take the time to read all of those. But you see Jacob in chapter 35 again building altars to the Lord. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. In the latter part of the book of Genesis, we read that Abraham's people went down into Egypt And they were there for 400 years, and they became slaves to Pharaoh. They learned the ways of the Egyptians, and they ceased to worship the Lord. No more altars. Leviticus 17.7 tells us that they sacrificed unto devils. Joshua 24.14 says that they served other gods, the gods of the Egyptians. And so God sends Moses in to deliver his people to whom he had made promises that they would become a great nation and that, that they would be blessed and they would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And God sends Moses in and they leave Egypt under Moses' hand. And what does Moses do immediately after taking them out of Egypt? Genesis chapter or Exodus 17, Moses builds an altar and calls the name of it Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is my banner. And God instructs Israel to begin building an altar. And in Exodus 20, 24, we read about uh, an altar of earth that they were to make unto him. And in, Genesis, in Exodus 24, uh, Moses goes up to the mount, and uh, the Lord says, uh, Just Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders, y'all stay away. Moses is going to come up, and I'm going to speak to him face to face. And Moses wrote all these words and rose up early in the morning and built an altar. You can't miss it unless you want to. God began in book of Genesis chapter 3 building an altar. And his people thereafter continued to build altars where sacrifices were made for sins. And in Exodus chapter 25, after Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, brought them to Sinai, God gave specific and detailed instructions for how 
to build a tabernacle, a place where he would dwell. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments God gave Moses in the Mount of Sinai. Chief among the laws that God gave them was the instructions on how to build a tabernacle, a place that God said where he would dwell among his people. Now, on the screen, you'll see a very simple depiction of the uh, layout of the tabernacle. And on that layout, uh, first in chapter 25 of Exodus, they took an offering for them to get the materials for all uh, that they would need for this. And then they were to build the Ark of the Covenant, which if you look up there where it says Holy of Holies, that little kind of a gold-colored square, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. Uh, way too many people only know about that through Indiana Jones. Uh, it's in the book of Exodus. And it was a, uh, a, a piece of the furniture that was placed there with cherubim overlooking it because it figured something in the heavens. And on top of that was a, uh, a mercy seat where the blood of the sacrifice annually was place where the blood was applied for the people's sins once every year. There's a table of showbread for the priest to eat from, a candlestick or, or lampstand to, to give light inside this tabernacle, and there was a veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. The priest could go into the holy place and do their ministry. There were their prayers and, and such. But only the high priest could be, go beyond that veil. And only the high priest could go once a year. Everyone else who came to the tabernacle did not enter the holy place or the holy of holies. They could only come into the courtyard, which you see. And the first thing they would see when they came into that courtyard was a brazen altar. Exodus 27 verse 1 says, Thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood and five cubits long and five cubits broad and the altar shall be four square and the height thereof shall be three cubits. So it's seven and a half feet square and four and a half feet high. And that's where they would make these sacrifices. You couldn't come to God. You couldn't come to worship without going through that altar. When you approach the place of worship, you could not see the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God said He would dwell between the cherubims. You could not enter the holy place or the holy of holies. What you could do was bring your sacrifice. You would bring it into the outer court, and the first thing you would see was that brazen altar. It was the largest item at the tabernacle. It was placed directly in the path to the opening of that tabernacle. No worshiper could avoid seeing it. It was called the altar of burnt offering, the altar of God and the altar of the Lord. And the fire on that altar was continually burning. All of these items in this tabernacle were designed and built according to a pattern that God showed Moses on Mount Sinai, Exodus 25, 9, according to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. Exodus 25, 40, and look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed you in the mount. God did not leave this up to chance. He did not say, hey, Moses, you design it. You figure out what you want to do. He said, no, 
I have a pattern. You're going to make this tabernacle after the pattern that I show you. And the reason why is given to us in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest, that's Jesus, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. This isn't on earth. This isn't a tabernacle or temple on earth. This is in heaven. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. This is the pattern that he said, I want you to make that tabernacle after. It matches what is in heaven. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man, Jesus, have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. So Moses' tabernacle was just a shadow of the real thing. For see, saith he, that you make all things according to the pattern showed you in the mount. You see, it's very important that we follow exactly what God says. Because Moses might have thought, well, you know, I I think this tabernacle would be better if it was a little longer and maybe a little wider. We need more room in there. Or this altar or this or that. And God said, no, you make it just exactly like I tell you. Why? He didn't tell Moses that there was a heavenly tabernacle. He just told him what to do. You know, that's good enough for us. When God tells us what to do, we should just do it. We don't have to have a reason why. Now, sometimes he gives us a reason, but he told Moses what to do, and he did it. Hebrews chapter 8, but now has he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. Jesus is the mediator of a covenant Better than what God gave to Moses. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Paul tells us it was not faultless, but that it was a weak because of the flesh. In Hebrews 9, this better covenant is called, and this is our fifth reference to the term, it is called the New Testament. Hebrews 9, 15, And for this cause he, Jesus, is the mediator of the New Testament. When Jesus went to the cross, he went as the Lamb of God. Now, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Those Old Testament sacrifices simply covered the sins. They paid for the sins, but they had no power to take away those sins. But when John saw Jesus coming to his baptism, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. It didn't have to be repeated once every year. He did it once for all. When Jesus died on the cross, he accomplished at the cross what the Old Testament sacrifices could not. When he had completed his work on the cross, the brazen altar, he cried out in John 19, 30, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up the ghost. 
And at that very moment, the Bible tells us in Matthew 27, 51, that the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. When Jesus died and cried out, it is finished, God himself took that veil that separated the holiest of all from the holy place and tore it in two, signifying, pardon me, signifying that the way into the Holy of Holies, the way to the Ark of the Covenant, the way into the mercy seat, the way into the presence of God had been made clear. Jesus is that way. Hebrews 9.24 says that Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus is our high priest who went as the sacrifice for our sins to the brazen altar at the cross, gave himself for our sins, died in our place, and then tore the veil in two to bring us to God. It is the New Testament of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once, Hebrews says in verse 26 of chapter 9, once in the end of the world he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. When Jesus died on the cross, he put away the sin of every man, woman, boy, and girl that has ever lived or ever will live by becoming sin for us and taking that curse and that rebuke and that uh, punishment for sin. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Christ is the mediator. That's the go-between. The high priest. He's the mediator of the New Testament. Much better than the Old Testament. You and I are called His ministers. We are ministers of the New Testament. The last use of that phrase is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse number 6, where Paul writes these words, Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Jesus is the mediator of the New Testament. He's done all that is necessary for anyone in this world to come unto God, though we are sinners, guilty and undone. He on the cross of Calvary tasted death for every man, the Bible says. And you know the churches of Jesus Christ don't have a problem with that. Jesus is the mediator, we confess that. We believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We celebrate that. Easter Sunday, we'll be setting aside a special, as we do every year, to remember and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the beginning of the New Testament. You see, the, the New Testament doesn't begin until after Jesus dies. So we'll be celebrating that. We don't have a problem with the belief 
in the gospel or belief in that New Testament. But do your neighbors know about it? Your co-workers know about it? You see, we, we, we love to believe the gospel. But we don't often love to share the gospel. It is a ministry of the New Testament. It's a life-giving ministry. Verse 6 says, The gospel gives life to those dead in sins. It's a liberating ministry. Verse 17 says that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the law. Freedom to serve God and to live for Christ. But it's also, and primarily, a lost people ministry. Christ didn't die just so the church will have something to believe. Christ died so that the church would have something to declare to the world. We are the ministers, the ones who pronounce, who tell, who go, who give, so that others will hear. How shall they hear without a preacher, someone to tell them? 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, Verse 1, therefore, seeing we have this ministry, we have, uh, we have re- uh, as we have received mercy, we faint not. He says in verse 3, but if our gospel be hid, hid to them that are lost. You see, the gospel, the New Testament, is a ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 says, all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ, you've trusted Him. He's brought you in by His blood. You're saved, as we sang about here this morning. You know Him. He's part of you. You're in Him. He's in you. You have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But then He says He has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead. In other words, in place of Jesus. He said, I'm going away, but you're here. You're in my place. Be reconciled to God. That's our job, church. To bring people to the brazen altar where their sins can be forgiven. You cannot go into heaven. You cannot go into the presence of God without going through the cross. It is that message that we bear to the nations of the world that Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the dead to save us from our sins. On Sunday, March 31st, we will gather here as a church to celebrate Easter. That's six weeks from today. I'm going to ask the church to do something between now and Easter. I'm going to ask you to do three things. I'm going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you to fast. And I'm going to ask you to invite someone or someones to be with you on Easter Sunday. This place will be filled. 
We'll have a good number of people here. It will be a shame if there aren't some lost people here. It will be a shame if there is someone who is here that has never trusted Christ. I'm going to ask you to begin now praying for someone to invite, to have with you on Easter Sunday. We're going to do this in some creative ways. Starting this Tuesday, I'm going to ask the entire church to stop whatever you're doing at 3.31 in the afternoon and pray. You say, why 3.31? That's kind of an odd time. Because 3.31 is March 31st. That's Easter Sunday. And so I want every one of us at 3.31 in the afternoon just to stop what you're doing. You might be in the middle of a board meeting and say, guys, hold on. i got to pray. Uh, you might have to wake up from your afternoon nap. I don't know. But at 3.31, I'm going to ask you to stop what you're doing and pray. You could be creative about it. You could pray for 3 minutes and 31 seconds. And if you think that's not a long time, start praying. Or you could pray for three people that you're going to invite and pray for them for 31 seconds each. Do whatever, but stop at 3.31 beginning Tuesday. You say, why Tuesday? Because from Tuesday, the 20th, through Easter Sunday is 40 days. And that's a special time we were going to set aside to pray for our Easter Sunday services. So pray. Not only uh, am I asking you to pray for that, but on Good Friday, starting at 6 o'clock, we have a 6.30 Tenebrae service that night. I'm going to ask that we have at least one person praying at the top of the hour, every hour, for the next 24 hours throughout the Sabbath. Friday night to Saturday night, 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. You can sign up for that. We'll have a sign-up online. You can say, I'll take 6 o'clock Friday night. I'll take 7 o'clock. I'll take 8 o'clock. I'm going to suggest that somebody besides myself take 3 (laughs) a.m. But we'll have somebody praying every hour on the hour through the 24 hours of that Sabbath before Easter Sunday morning. And I'm going to ask you to fast. Now, you don't have to fast all day long. You can if you choose to. And some of you may shouldn't fast for health reasons. But if you can fast and will, we're going to ask that that someone in our church be fasting every day those 40 days from this coming Tuesday through Easter Sunday. I would ask you to do me a favor as you leave today. In the um, four years as you leave, there is a calendar And if you can just put your name on a date and say, I'll fast this day. We want to fill up that calendar from the 20th of of, uh, February through uh, the day before Easter with someone in our church fasting every day and asking God that we would be able ministers of the New Testament and that God would give us unsaved people to be with us on Easter Sunday morning. And then I'm going to ask you to invite Ask someone to be with you on Easter Sunday. Everybody can ask someone. I've already got a list of 30 people that I'm asking. Some have already asked. But we can all ask one person. And preferably someone you know that needs Christ. 
Now, I hope that uh, other family members or people join you and come that are already saved. That's wonderful. But I'm asking you to specifically ask God to put on your heart one person who does not know the Lord. To invite them to be with you on Easter Sunday morning. We're going to do some special things between now and Easter Sunday to meet our neighbors. Our literal neighbors right here at the church. And you can do the same thing in your neighborhood. You can do similar things there. But on Saturday morning, March 23rd, we're going to be doing what we're calling the Love Your Neighbor Laundromat Outreach. Now I have to confess to you. We have neighbors directly to our south. There's a laundromat right across the street from our parking lot. We've had problems with the people who hang out there. We've lost at least one catalytic converter from our van, and they tried to take a second, but they they quit in the middle, and it was just hanging. There's some unsavory people who hang out there. And I'll be honest with you. God spoke to my heart and convicted me. He said, what have you done to try to reach them with the gospel? And I said, nothing. They're our neighbors. They're right there. I've complained about it. But what have I done? Nothing. Well, that's going to change. I went over last week, talked with the manager there and said, we want to come over on the 23rd, and this is what we want to do. We want to pay for all the people who come in on that morning to do laundry. So somebody shows up at the laundromat across the street on Saturday morning, March 23rd. Main Street Baptist Church is paying for the laundry. You say, why? Because we're going to love our neighbors. And while people are doing laundry, they got nothing to do but sit read a book, play a video game or whatever, that'll give us an opportunity to have a conversation, get to know them, talk to them, maybe share Christ with them right there on the spot. And we'll give them an invitation to our Easter Sunday morning service. We're also going to set up in the parking lot with a grill and grill some hot dogs. About 11 o'clock, all those that are getting their laundry done that morning say, hey, we got lunch for you across the street. Love for you all to come over and have a hot dog with us. We'll probably set up a few other things to do. I've already talked to some folks, and we'll be sharing more with you about that. But Saturday morning, March 23rd, 9 to noon, right here in our parking lot and across the street at the laundromat, Love Your Neighbor Laundromat Outreach. If you want to be a part of that, let me know, and I'll let you know what we need and what can happen. And maybe we get so many people say, I want to be a part of that. We've just got too many. And we find another laundromat somewhere else or another place. Someone said, you know, you could go set up and buy people coffee and invite them to church. That's not a bad idea. I thought about that and I said, okay, so we've got a laundromat here and we've got a lamppost over here. And I said, that's kind of like blind Bartimaeus and uh, Nicodemus. <laughs> the one who has very little or nothing and the one who's doing all right. Uh, but that's a great opportunity, too. Maybe you take a carafe of coffee and go set up on the square and say, hey, free coffee. Anybody comes, gets a cup of coffee, strike up a conversation, invite them to Easter service. Maybe you put a yard sign in your yard inviting people to come to your place for a cup of coffee or do whatever and invite them.
to Sunday morning Easter services at Main Street Baptist Church. Well, we want to get to know our neighbors. Because you really can't love someone you don't know. And it's hard to hate somebody that you do know. So let's love our neighbors. And let's reach our neighbors with the New Testament. We are ministers of the New Testament. Join me in prayer. Father, we love you and we thank you for your blessings. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that he went to the cross to die for our sins. And rose from the dead to give us eternal life. And Lord, help us to be faithful ministers of your New Testament. The New Testament in your blood which you shed for us for the remission of our sins. And Lord, we'll be careful to praise you for all that you do. We pray for Georgetown and the surrounding areas. We pray for the people here. Lord, help us to be able ministers of the New Testament to those who you've placed us among. We ask